morning. Hey, we rented um, a theater August 30th um, for that show. So uh, we have about half the tickets sold the first service. Uh, when you leave here after this, this service is over with, there's an information counter right there. You can buy tickets. So it's uh, 3 o'clock the 30th, so that's two Sundays from now. Not this Sunday, not next Sunday, but the following Sunday. I'd uh, love for you to be there. I'm pretty sure we'll sell out, if not um, today, in the next couple of days. So probably today. So if you want to go, stop at the information counter, buy a block of tickets. Uh, make sure you're looking at your bulletin. There's all kinds of good things going on here at Grace. I want to remind you about Alpha. It's coming this fall. We're going to have 500 guests participating in Alpha. And the question I have for you is, who's your 10? Who are the 10 people that God has laid in your heart to invite? Remember, we're going to do it here at the church. We're going to do it in people's homes. Uh, and we're going to do it in what we call third spaces at bars and restaurants. Uh, Alpha is going to be happening all over the east side and, and around Detroit. We just had some people talking about doing it up near uh, um, the Mount Clemens area. So we're going to even have some things going up in that area. So if you're interested uh, in, in hosting something, you should be letting us know. But Alpha's coming. You need to be praying about that. And then I also want to remind you uh, that we have the run coming up. Uh, on September 19th, I'm going to run in it, and I would like to invite you to come run with me or probably run ahead of me, depending on how it works out. Um, but we'd love for you to be there. love to get a few hundred people showing up for that. This is a major part of our annual budget at Eagle Sports, uh, so we need for you to participate in that and be a part of it. Hey, so this week we're wrapping up the series um, that we've called Proof, Lessons from the Holy Land. And uh, really, it's just, it just was an opportunity for me to kind of share what God laid on our hearts is, is Meg and I and the kids had a chance to f spend five weeks uh, in Israel. It was a great trip, and um, even though the series is over, I have a s suspicion that a few more pictures and a few more uh, stories will probably make their way into my sermons uh, going forward. But this is the last week. So if you remember, uh, just a little recap. The first week of the series, uh, we talked about this idea that God has this desire to give us peace, an inner abiding sort of peace. We talked about the word shalom and how it's the nature of God to want to give us peace. And this is the, the peace that passes understanding, but it's this transformational peace. It makes us different. It makes, if we really have shalom peace, it, it affects who we are, but it affects all of our relationship. It not only transforms us, but transforms uh, other people as well. And, and this peace that God gives us is what allows us to bear fruit in our lives. So we need to have the shalom kind of peace. And then in week two, if you remember, I showed you maps of how small Israel was, yet how perfect it was to be a place to be priests to the world. So we talked about God placing the Israelites in the perfect place at the perfect time so that they could be priests to the world, they could bear fruit. And the application was God has done the same for us. God has placed us where we are, when we are, so that we can be priests. You are a holy nation. You are a priest. And God calls you to bear fruit. So God has, God has given you peace so that you can bear fruit. God has placed you in a perfect place to bear fruit. And then last week, I talked about this random walk in a vineyard outside of Jerusalem and how God showed me that he cleared the stones, that he planted the vines, that he built the watchtower, that he built the wine press, and he did all that work so that I could bear fruit. God did the work so that you could bear fruit. So you can kind of see there's a thread that runs throughout this, this entire series that God has placed us in, a, in the perfect place. He's given us this peace in our spirit to be able to bear fruit, and he's, he's given us everything we need. He's done the hard work so that we can be fruitful. Well, this week, I want to talk about a common trap, a common trap that keeps us from bearing fruit. And we need to 
to pay attention to this. We need to see it because, because if, if it's really true that it's common, then, then we that have been following Christ for very long have a, have a tendency to get ourselves caught up in this. And then the fruit that we bear is what the scriptures call bad fruit. If you remember, I've been saying throughout this whole series that the movement of God always starts with an invitation. The movement of God in your life, the movement of God in my life always starts with an invitation. And the invitation that this morning is for you to let down your guard. To just let down your guard and allow God to speak to you individually. And if God speaks to each one of us individually, then he will be speaking to us corporately. God says, just, just give me what little you have. This, is, this invitation is there. Give me what little you have, and I will multiply it. I will do more than you can ask, think, or imagine. This is the fish and loaves principle at work in our lives. So let down your guard and allow God to do more than you can ask, think, or imagine. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for uh, the message that you've laid on my heart for this week. I pray that we would have ears to hear, that any any thing that would keep us from receiving what the Spirit has for us would be laid aside right now. I pray that you would just give us tender hearts, fertile soil to receive the revelation from you. Lord, if I say anything that's not of you, may it just fall to the side, but the things that are directly from you, may they uh, take root and bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the things that jumps out to anyone who visits Jerusalem is the vast religious diversity. There is within each of the big three religions, right? You have the, the Muslims, and you have the Christians, and you have the Jewish people all in this same small city. And, and, and you see how this, there's, there's all this going on. But within each one of those, those groups, there are all these different religious expressions. So, so even within Judaism, there's different religious expressions of Judaism. And what I want to do is just take a few minutes and show you some pictures and kind of get you into seeing and understanding just how diverse and, and how different, how there's such a the wide expression. So, so this first picture that they're going to put on the screen is uh, a man at the, at the Western Wall. And you can see he hasn't cut his sideburns. He's wearing a, a black outfit. And he's wearing a, a unique fur hat. And here's the deal. You walk around Jerusalem and you see these men wearing these fur hats. And some of them are, are shaped differently. Some of them are taller. And some of them are brown. And some of them are black. And, and here's the deal. that The hat actually helps them to know which sect they are a part of or which rabbi they're following. It's kind of similar to how we would see somebody who's maybe Amish or Mennonite. And we would know right away by their clothing, by the way they're, oh, they're Mennonites. Oh, they're Amish. So they, they wear and they dress differently, and these are Orthodox Jews. There's another picture that I love, and this is a, a picture of two men and a boy getting ready to worship at the Western Wall. And you can see they have a prayer shawl on, and, and, and they're, 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 they're practicing their religion. It's their own expression. But I want to read a passage in Scripture because what, what you see in this picture is kind of all represented in this passage from Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, that the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. And then listen to verse 8. It says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. So you can see these things are called Teflon. I got a new toy, by the way. Pretty cool. You like this, John? It's pretty cool, isn't it? So if you look right here, he's actually wearing a little block on his forehead. And he's binding it on his arms. 
they're actually taking that passage of Scripture and living it out in a literal way. So we would read it, and we would say that's a figurative statement, that we're to always be thinking of the things of God. Well, they read it, and they say, well, it says bind it to your arms and bind it to your forehead, so we're going to bind it to our forehead, and we're going to bind it to our arms. It's a fascinating expression of their Jewish faith. So there's all these expressions within the Jewish faith, but the same is true for the Christians as well. This is just a picture of a Greek Orthodox uh, man going in to, to worship. Um, then we have a picture of some Roman Catholics who are getting ready to, to worship. This is actually in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. So you have, even within the Christian faith, different looks, different ways of dressing, different ways of approaching God, different ways of doing uh, what they do to express their particular faith. But it's true of the Muslims as well. This is a large group of men bowing down in front of the Alaska Mosque, bowing towards Mecca. And you can see in the background the Dome of the Rock, which we've talked about um, a couple times throughout the last few weeks. All of this diversity, it's just, it's amazing to see it when you're there. This is a, just a picture on the street, and you can see you have a, a woman in a Muslim garb, you have a, a man who's obviously an Orthodox Jew, you have a woman who's maybe from Los Angeles, I think that's what it says. I don't know, she's really from, but she's wearing Western clothes. So you have this diversity of people, the, all these different expressions of, of faith. And in my, one of my favorite pictures is just a picture of a Jewish man and a Muslim man walking past each other in the old city. So one thing happens, you spend a little time in Jerusalem and you can't miss that it's a city of religion, it's a city of rules, it's a city of clothing, it's a city of customs and processes, and all of these things are put into place or, or put into effect in an effort to reach God and to please God. I sat with a Jewish man when we were in, in Jerusalem and he said, Doug, you judge the Jews because of their religious behaviors, but what you don't realize is they're just trying to please God. And I just sat there, and I kind of listened to him. I didn't really respond, but I, what I really wanted to do is I wanted to just, like, put my hands on his face, and with the most tender passion, I just wanted to say, it's not working. God is not impressed with our religious scurrying. God does not want our religious activities. He wants our hearts. He wants to know, he wants us to know his love at such a deep level that everything we do with our lives is an act of worship. We don't earn God's love, we simply receive it. And when we receive God's love, everything changes. Our lives become a response to that receiving of God's love. So what stood out to me was not just this wide array of religious expressions, but the rigidity that comes with all of that. I loved Jerusalem more than I ever would have imagined. It, it really has, has gotten somewhere into my soul. I, I, I loved Jerusalem, but it is the most rigid place I have ever been. It is a city entrenched with religion. You can see it, you can feel it, you can taste it. And the spirit of religion affects every part of the culture. The fruit of this religious spirit is divisiveness. It's an atmosphere of judgment. It's being closed off to anything new or anything that's out of the ordinary. So we spent a whole lot of time in Jerusalem. It was, it was great, but we also had the great privilege of spending uh, quite a few days in the region of Galilee. So I have a map up here. I just want to give you some idea of where we're going. So if you were at Jerusalem, really sits right about here, just if you went right off the top of the Dead Sea, which is right here. Um, so here we spent a lot of time, but... but quite a few days we got to travel all the way up and this is the Sea of Galilee and this would be the region 
around the Sea of Galilee. And, and the contrast was incredibly striking. Galilee is laid back. It's very open. The, the, we saw very few people in what I would call orthodox clothing. People were a lot friendlier to us. The conversations came easier. They were much more open to other ways of thinking. Ironically, Galilee was more worldly, or, or maybe the word is secular, and I liked that a lot better. I liked the fact that it was a more secular community. I don't know what that says about me, but, but I liked it better. So the fact is, 2,000 years, and really nothing has changed. Jesus spent the majority of his time in the, the region of Galilee. He recruited his band of disciples from around the Sea of Galilee. He ministered in the villages and towns around Galilee. And you have to ask the question, well, why wouldn't he do all that in Jerusalem? After all, it's the center of, of Jewishness. It's the center of the Jewish faith. Why wouldn't Jesus live there? Why wouldn't he recruit his people there? Why wouldn't he do his, his best work or his most work, not his best work, but the most of his work there in Jerusalem? Why would he go to this small rural area and deal with communities of people who are rubbing shoulders with Gentiles? Turns out that the district of Galilee, and particularly the city of Capernaum, which was home for Jesus and the disciples, was the perfect place to launch a movement, to launch what we know as the church. And it was perfect for a few different reasons. The first reason it was perfect is because it was extremely diverse. The Galilee area, and particularly Capernaum, was a, a large city, and it had a, a large Roman military presence. And, and anybody that was coming out of the north, remember Damascus was to the, to the north, it was a major roadway, and anybody that was coming out of the north would come through Galilee. They would stay in Capernaum. So, so large garrisons of soldiers were placed there, and soldiers came and went. So you had this huge military presence. But it was also a, a town that had manufacturing presence. So they were actually making things for the rest of Israel to use in their production, and, and it was an agricultural center, and it was a fishing village. So people came and went, uh, both Jews and Gentiles, and, and Romans who were Gentiles, were coming and going out of Capernaum. It was a, a hub of industry, a, a, a hub of the economic structure in that place. It was perfect for that reason, because it had all of this, this diversity coming and going. So not only did it have the military presence and the economic presence, but it also had a strong Jewish presence. In the, in the city, there was a synagogue. This is a picture of a, uh, the ruins of a synagogue from uh, 4th or 5th century. So all the white that you see here, this is uh, the ruins of, in Capernaum of a 4th uh, or 5th century synagogue. But what I want you to notice is this black basalt stone right here. This is actually a foundation of a synagogue that would have existed in Jesus' days. Jesus would have actually spent time in that particular synagogue. He would have taught in that particular synagogue. Sometimes we have to stop and we have to remember Jesus was Jewish. He practiced the Jewish faith, so he would want to live somewhere where there was a synagogue, and this was the perfect place. All of this was going around, going on in Capernaum. So first, it was a perfect place because of all of this diversity. But the second reason is that, that there was an openness in this area. They were open to something new. They were open to something happening that was different. The religious spirit that I've talked about that existed in, in Jerusalem, that exists in Jerusalem now, existed in Jerusalem back in Jesus' day as well. 
if you just read the Gospels with this lens on, looking for the religious spirit, the rigidity that I'm talking about, you will see it over and over. They were so resistant to anything Jesus was trying to do. They, they couldn't see anything new. They couldn't move into anything he wanted to do. There was just such a, a, a rigidness to the whole thing. So some of you are thinking to yourself, wow, that's really fascinating. But what does it have to do with me? I'm glad you asked. Remember where I started this morning. I said that this is a common trap that we all, if we're not careful, can fall into. If you've been following Jesus for any time, then you are susceptible, you are vulnerable to this trap. And the trap is the religious spirit. One of the books I've been reading um, along the way uh, is a book by Jonas Clark. It's called 30 Pieces of Silver. I would highly recommend it. It's just a really good book. He does a great job of, of kind of helping us to understand the religious spirit and the effect that it has on it. But I want to read this quote from the book. It says, The religious spirit's purpose is to stand in the way of the spirit of God's true work. It wants you to trade your liberty in for legalism. If the religious spirit cannot destroy your spiritual zeal, then it will try to conform you into its respectable image. The problem with that is the image of a religious spirit deceitfully appears righteous. Religious spirits are camouflaged by image. In other words, we have a hard time seeing it because it looks spiritual, but it's not. But, but I want you to just hang on to that first sentence. He says, the religious spirit's purpose is to stand in the way of the spirit of God's true work. If this is true, and this is a common pitfall, then we need to pay attention. We need to open our eyes, and we need to see what God wants us to see. So grab your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 2. So Matthew, Mark, second book of the New Testament, Mark chapter 2. We're going to re start reading in verse 18. And, and in this particular passage, there are three incidences. In all three incidents, Jesus is taking on the religious spirit. And I want to go through each one of them and, and kind of use this as, as a teaching point. But, but here Jesus is, he's confronting the religious spirit. It says, now John's, and just so you know, this is John the Baptist, not John the writer of the gospel. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And some of the people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, well, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom, talking about himself, the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. Hey, we're going to talk about fasting in the next few weeks. We're going to uh, launch another series, and we're going to talk about the things that we do in our life that make space for God, spiritual disciplines. We're going to talk about fasting, and we're going to talk about worship, and we're going to talk about Sabbath-keeping. And, and what we want to do, is the, the interesting thing is, is, is we want to make sure we talk about these without talking about them from a religious standpoint. We don't do these things to be religious. This isn't about religious scurrying. But what Jesus is saying is you fast in order to experience more of the presence of God. And then he says, well, I am God, and I'm with them. I'm walking with them. I'm talking with them. I'm eating with them. Why would they need to fast to experience my presence? I'm here, but I'm going to go eventually. And when I go, then, then they'll fast. So it gives us a clue as to why do we fast. We fast to experience more of the presence of God in our own lives. But again, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. But then Jesus goes on to say in verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth to an old garment 
Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear even worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskin. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskin will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. The patch or the wineskins are our ways of thinking. There are paradigms. There are our, our worldview, our spiritual worldview. And Jesus is saying, look, if you want to see the movement of God in your life, so, so, so the wine is, is God's movement, the spirit of God moving. And he says, if you want to see it, if you want to know what I'm doing, then you're going to have to learn to think differently. You're going to have to have a transformation of your mind in order to experience the things of God. Remember, he is confronting the religious spirit. And he's saying, when you have a religious spirit and you think you know how God is going to move and you think you know just what God is supposed to do, when God does something different, then you miss the movement of God when it happens right in front of you. Let's keep reading. It says in verse 23, on the Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some of the heads of grain. Gasp. <gasps> the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, I'm not sure if Jesus ever really rolled his eyes, but when I read this, I see him, like, really rolling his eyes, like, Oh, are you kidding me? You're kidding me. Oh, brother. And he looked at it. Verse 25, he says, Have you never read what David did when his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar and the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread. Again, they would have all been like, <gasps> which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. You see, David understood something. David understood that the, the laws, that the, the rituals, all the things were put in place to make space in their lives to experience God. All of that was there to help them know who God was, to understand who God was, that, that the laws weren't there to oppress the people. And David was in need, and so he went into the sanctuary, and he got the bread, and he ate the bread, and God was obviously okay with it because now Jesus is talking about it. And what does Jesus say then in verse 27? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This was put into place for you. I, I put the Sabbath into place. I put these laws into place for you to use as a way of understanding who I am, of drawing closer to me. They're not there to oppress you. They're not there to lord over you. Jesus is saying, like fasting, the Sabbath there is to help you connect with God. It's not about religion, and it's not about rules. He's saying, open your mind, or you're going to miss the movement of God. So look at chapter 3 third incident. It says, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Can I just tell you something? That's the religious spirit. When you're looking for the reason to be upset, when you're actually waiting for the thing to happen so that you can say, see, there it is. I, I knew it was going to go down like this. That's the religious spirit. And so they're waiting to see what, what's going to happen? So they can accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would actually heal on the Sabbath. Now, we look at this, and we think it's ludicrous. But remember, their laws said that they couldn't do this, and so they're waiting. Is he actually going to do something good for somebody on the Sabbath? Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. And Jesus asked him, which is, ask, he's talking to the people now, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or do evil, to save a life or to kill? And they knew better than to talk, so they remained silent. In verse 5, he looked around at them in anger. And here's what I want you to see. 
The religious spirit makes God angry. The religious spirit stirs something in God, and he's angry. It says, and he looked at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, as in his hand was completely restored. Don't miss this. Look at the last phrase. It says, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. He healed a man's hand that was shriveled, and they plotted how to kill him. The religious spirit is so blinded that they couldn't see the movement of God. All they saw is he was breaking the rules. He wasn't doing it the way they were told it was supposed to be done. It didn't look the way they thought it would look. And they were so incensed that they plotted to kill God. The religious spirit is so pervasive that they can't see God moving in front of them. The tragedy is that when we are so rooted to our old thought and, and our old ways of seeing things, we miss Jesus. You know, Jesus said to them, he said, you know, if I had come and done these same works in Sodom. Now, we all know about Sodom and Gomorrah, right? I mean, we don't even have to know anything about it. We just know when you say Sodom and Gomorrah, you're talking about a bad place, right? Sodom and Gomorrah, that was a bad place. And Jesus said, if I had come to Sodom and Gomorrah and I had done the works I've done, if they had seen me, they would have recognized who I was and they would have repented. But woe to you because of your religious spirit. You can't even see God when he's standing right in front of you. And here's what God is saying to me. You are guilty of this. Doug, you have a religious spirit. I have to be intentional about denouncing and, and turning away from my natural tendency to have a religious spirit. I sometimes get upset over little things and I miss the rest of church because I'm upset about something that was said or something that was done. I'm stewing in my own mind, and I miss the movement of God when it's happening right under my nose. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. This is the good fruit that we are to be known by. People should be able to say, Doug, you know, like I would want my kids to be able to say, my dad, he, he's, he shows me love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control. I'm not sure they would say that about me, but they should because that's the fruit of the Spirit. In contrast, what I want to do is I want to read for you just a list of the fruit of the religious spirit. And what I want to encourage you to do is, is take a risk and ask the Lord, search me, search my heart, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So as I read these words and I talk about it, just ask yourself, does that ring true for me? And chances are you're not going to see yourself in all of them, but if you see yourself in some of them, just just allow the Holy Spirit to, to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. When we are trapped by the religious spirit, it manifests itself and we bear fruit in several different ways. And here's the deal. We have talked about this for two or three years at Grace. There is a something blocking us that we know God wants to do more that, that there's we talk about a glass ceiling, we've talked about a dam. there's something that you want to know what's in the way, it's the religious spirit. Remember the quote I read from the book, the religious spirit stands with the desire to stop the movement of God in our church. And if we need to see this, if we really want to see God do more than we could ask 
think or imagine. So when a person is given way to the religious spirit in their whole lives, they become judgmental. So this is about not seeing the, the, the log in your own eye, but seeing the speck in somebody else's eye. So you know what that, that saying means? Jesus used that as a teaching point. And what he was saying is you, you concentrate on what's wrong with those people or other people, but you haven't done the good work of allowing me to show you where you're falling short yourself. Where are the things you need to work on? What are the sins in your own life? What are the, what are the ways that you could grow in your own walk with God? That's the log in your own eye. And once you've dealt with the log in your own eye, then you can see the speck in other people's eyes. And what I love about this is once you understand this and you begin to concentrate on the log in your own eye, you're not going to have time to deal with the speck in anybody else's eye. You will, you will literally spend your time. But when you do, because you've done that good soul work and because God has humbled you by showing you the ways that you've all shared, then when you talk to your friend or when you help them with the speck in their eyes, it will always be from a place of gentleness and a place of grace and a place of mercy because you know, Lord, I have dealt with so much stuff. Can I just, God has shown me this little thing going on and I just want to help you to see it. It would be totally different. So there's this judgmental spirit that comes with honest when we have a religious spirit it's it's the value of dealing with our own junk are you more aware and focused on other people's sin than your own do you find yourself listening to sermons and thinking about who they apply to boy i really wish my cousin would have been here for this one right when a person is given way to the religious spirit, they become self-righteous. This comes across as being smugly moralistic, intolerant of the opinions and the behaviors of others. It's forgetting that the only reason that God sees you as righteous because because of the work of Jesus on the cross. You didn't earn your righteousness. You didn't make yourself righteousness. You just pleaded on the blood of Christ, and God sees you as righteous. Sometimes we forget and we think we've made ourselves righteous. Are you aware of the grace and mercy that God has sported to you? And do you extend that same level of grace and mercy to others, even when they don't do what you want them to do? Are you easily offended? Do you ever hear yourself saying, boy, if people were just more like me, If you find yourself being the morality police, then there's a good chance you're trapped by the religious spirit. A person gives way to the religious spirit, they become critical. And I almost took this one off the list because it hits a little too close to home. Thought, well, but the truth of the matter is this, is this is the one that hit me the hardest. It's hard for me to listen to other speakers. It's hard for me uh, to go to other churches without being in analysis mode. And to be very honest, I'm just very critical. It's inappropriate, and it puts other people off. And God is saying, this is an area you have to grow. This is your religious spirit. And just a warning on this one. Sometimes we say, yeah, but, uh, you know, we, we put our critical nature into play, and we say, well, I'm just trying to be helpful. Oh, Lord, help me. When a person gives way to the religious spirit, they become legalistic. 
This is about having a list of, of rules in your mind or, or behaviors that you think every Christian ought to, to follow. If they're really serious about being a Christian, then they're going to act this way. Let me give you a, a little example. You see someone in the parking lot smoking, and you think to yourself, well, if they were really serious about Jesus, they wouldn't be smoking. You see, we've made a list of rules, and then we've made a, an application to their soul about the rules that they are or aren't following. And I'm not saying everybody should go smoke. That's not my point. My point is we don't need to judge people by the outside. And Jesus said, we need to look at the inside. It's not the outside that makes somebody clean. There's something different going on. When a person gives way to the religious spirit, they become argumentative. The dictionary says of someone who's argumentative, they're they, it says, uh, fond of or given to dispute. Do you like to debate? Do you like to banter with people? Do you like to stir things up? Do you want to be the one to talk about some, some t just remote religious principle just for the idea of getting people stirred up? Are you one of those people that just a pot stirrer? When a person is given way to the religious spirit, they become intolerant. Let me just get real with you for a minute. This is the thing that causes me the most disappointment with the church in North America. You see, we reject people because they don't act the way we think they should act. We reject people because they don't follow biblical principles and they don't even know who Jesus is. Why would you follow biblical principles if you don't know who God is and you don't know who Jesus is? Why would you hold people to that standard and why would we lead with, you are bad, you are a sinner, you are doing things wrong? Why wouldn't we lead with, there's a God in heaven that loves you and desires to be in relationship with you? And then let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit's supposed to do. We have become intolerant. And can I just tell you, this is what makes the non-believing world want nothing to do with the church. When a person gives way to the religious spirit, they become insecure. This is that sense of never being good enough, never measuring up. If you've been walking with Jesus for a while and you still feel like you just, you just aren't good enough, you can't do it the right way, it is a dead giveaway that you have a religious spirit. And it's all of the things I've been talking about, that judgmental spirit and that intolerant spirit. You've just taken all of that same energy and you've just turned it all in on yourself. And just not getting it done. When a person gives way to the religious spirit, they become rigid. You know how it's supposed to be done, and if it's done differently, it's wrong. When we would travel, did a lot of short-term mission trips with Scott Shaw, and we'd go to other churches, and he would remind us over and over, it's not wrong, it's just different. Because we'd sit in church service, and they didn't do church the way we did church, and you would immediately think, well, that's not how you do church. We know how to do church because we do church this way, and that, that's the religious spirit at work. When you're trapped by the religious spirit, behaviors and religious tradition trumps and competes with the movement of the Spirit of God. I was talking about this particular sermon Friday morning. I meet with a group of guys every Friday morning. It's an important part of my spiritual journey to have those guys in my life. And I was talking about this particular passage, and one of the guys said, well, I remember when my son was young, and he went on a retreat at Grace. And while they were on the retreat, they took communion, but they took it with Fritos and Coke. 
And he said, I thought it was great, but when we got back, some of the parents were incensed. They were so angry. Can I tell you, that's the religious spirit. There are kids going off and drinking and partying, and our kids are somewhere celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ over Fritos and Coke, and we would get angry. That's not how you do it. No, that's not how you do communion. That's not the way it's done. We didn't teach you to be that disrespectful. That's the religious spirit, and it's cancer. I've had moments up here where I've read from the message. A message is a, just a, I don't know what you'd say about the message. There's times when the message is the only thing that helps me to understand what I'm supposed to understand. And I've read the message and I've had people come up to me and say, it is never appropriate to read the message in church. Look, can I tell you, that's the religious spirit. That's the religious spirit. I feel like God is saying to me, look, I love you. You're not the first ones to struggle with this. I know that this is, a, this is a hammer sort of sermon, and I'm not trying to hammer you. I'm just trying to tell you what God has been showing me. And, and what I do think he wants to say to us is, look, you're, you're not the first to struggle with this. But if you don't see it, you won't deal with it. Can we just be honest with ourselves and honest with God and see this thing called the religious spirit? Look at Luke 18. Jesus is confronting, again, the religious spirit. And so Luke 18, verse 9, he says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Do you know what that is? That's the definition of the religious spirit. Those who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on other, everyone else. Jesus told this parable. So he actually tells a story in order to help them understand this religious spirit that they're caught up in. He says, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. <laughs> thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. Do you see the religious spirit? Do you hear all the I language? I do this, I do that. I practice my religion. I have all kinds of religious scurrying going on. I am righteous because I do all of this. Look at verse 13. He says, Jesus is still talking. He says, but the tax collector, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, the tax collectors, they were the lowest of the low. They were in cahoots with, they were partners with the Roman government, the Roman government who was oppressing the Jewish people. And if you were a tax collector, you were in bed with them, and you were a liar, and you were a cheat, and you were a scoundrel. They were, you, you couldn't be, you couldn't call somebody something worse than calling them a tax collector. As a matter of fact, they were so despised that Jesus was criticized because he actually had dinner and ate with tax collectors. I often wonder, who would Jesus hang out with if he came now? Who would he actually have hung out with that would have caused us to be indignant? Like, can you believe he's hanging out with those people? Or if he told this story, who would he have used? Because he wouldn't have used a tax collector. It wouldn't have made sense to us. But maybe he would have said that it was a pastor and a gay man. Or maybe he would have said it was a pastor and an abortion doctor. Jesus says, I 
tell you the truth. This man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all of those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee is characterized by his religion. He is self-deceived, and he leaves in bondage. The tax collector is broken before God. He confesses his sins, and he experiences freedom. Galatians 5.4 has been a verse that has just uh, really just kind of punched me between the eyes this week. And Paul is talking about the religious spirit. He's saying whenever you try to do works in order to please God, whenever you think your religious scurrying is going to get it done, you're in deep trouble. Galatians 5.4 says, you who are trying to be justified by the law, in other words, you are trying to earn your, your righteousness by what you do, have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. I went back and looked this verse up in a bunch of different translations just because God was using it. And some of the translations read, you've been alienated from Christ. That's the one we just read. Then there's another translation that says, you've become estranged from Christ. Who would want that? Another one says, you've been severed from Christ. That's pretty severe, right? But the one that that really struck me the most, and it it, it really, it's just, I meditated on it, says, Christ has become no effect unto you. Jesus Christ, you're trying to earn something. Your religious activity is going on. And because of that, Christ has become no effect unto you. The religious spirit and the work of Jesus in our lives are incompatible. They cannot work together. The role, the work of the religious spirit is to stop or impede the work of God in our lives. The religious spirit blocks the movement of the Holy Spirit in this place, in our hearts. And can I tell you, it repels people who are far from Christ. They want nothing to do with the church because they see the religious spirit. God has said to us in this church, I want to do more than you can ask or imagine. I want to pour out my spirit in a way that, that, you've, that you've never even seen, that there's something holding you back. The something is the religious spirit. So what do we do? What do we do if you feel the nudge as I'm teaching and you realize, well, I have some of this in me? I'm going to take a big risk today, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask if, in just a moment, if, if you feel like this is something you've uh, allowed just at any level to be in your life, I'm going to ask you to stand in just a minute, and I'm going to pray over you. If you feel conviction, then I want you to allow me just to pray this prayer over you. And, and here's what I want you to hear. I'm standing. But if I were sitting and listening to this message, I would be standing. I need to confess a religious spirit. So I am with you. And if you stand, I just want to tell you, this is a no-judgment zone. And as a matter of fact, if we were to judge you, then we would have a religious spirit. And that's what we're teaching against. <laughs> The religious spirit lays a, a heavy load on us, and Jesus said, I have come to relieve that load. We need to lean into the Spirit of God, because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So if you feel like you want to be prayed over, I just want to encourage you to stand, and I'm going to pray this prayer for you, for me, and for Grace Community Church. I believe this is a moment in time. I believe this is a stake in the ground. 
that we are not going to be that kind of church, that we are going to be intentional about releasing and letting go of any kind of religious spirit. And when we do, we are going to see the Spirit of God moves in ways that we can't even ask, think, or imagine. Lord, this morning we just stand before you and we confess our sin and we ask through the blood of your son Jesus that you would forgive us. This day, we as a church, as individuals, desire to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. We confess to you that we have given ground to a religious spirit, and we ask in Jesus' name that you deliver us from evil. We confess our tendency to be cynical and to see what's wrong and not what's right. This day we release any guilt that we have of not being good enough and not measuring up. Lord, give each of us spiritual confidence that comes only from knowing the love of the Father. Lord, forgive us for having spiritual pride. Help us to walk humbly with you. This day we make this commitment that we will not give in to legalism. We will not worship tradition. We will not follow religious formulas. We will not work to earn the love or the favor of God that is only available to us through the Son of Jesus. Lord, we repent that we have placed traditions and rules above the power of your Son, Jesus. We desire to be the church that you've called us and equipped us to be. Lord, let your kingdom come on earth and in this church. Let your will be done here as it is in heaven. Forgive us and indwell us with an added measure of your presence. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I just want to remind you, there's always people down here that would love to pray with you. If you feel like you want more prayer, feel free to come down. As you leave today, they're going to give you a bag. This is how we uh, stock our food pantry. So next week, fill it with the things on the list, bring it back, and we will put that in the pantry. We serve uh, 50 to 70 families every other week, so we need your help with this. It's a great way for you to participate with us. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.